Good morning, church. Go ahead and grab a seat there. I'm excited to get into God's Word with you this morning. If you're new here, uh, welcome. I'm glad to have you here with us. My name is Nick Lees, and I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you this morning. And today, we're going back to the Old Testament for four weeks. Uh, So we're going to be kicking off a new small series in the book of Isaiah as we study the Suffering Servant Songs. And so this is going to be a foray back into the Old Testament. It's an opportunity for us just to see the chosen servant of God. And I hope that it will be a blessing as we are enriched in our understanding of who this chosen servant is. Um, Because God has this grand plan of redemption. From the very first pages of Genesis in the Bible, all the way to the very last pages of Revelation, God has a plan of rescue and redemption to bring himself glory. And we're going to get to see another part of that plan in Isaiah. And I hope for those who have been here regularly this year, as we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, that even what we study here will give you a deeper and richer understanding of who Jesus is and his ministry here on earth. Now, I just want to share with you guys that I, uh, I personally have a bit of a dilemma this morning. Okay, so I'm going to share with you on my dilemma. You know, at the beginning of a new study, what I like to do is give a lot of context to what we're about to read. I right? want you to understand the book and, and the author and, and why they're writing and what's going on in world history. And that's very important for us because we want to know what drove them uh, to write this and what is God trying to teach through it. And maybe you'd say, well, what's the dilemma there? I don't understand where the dilemma would be. Well, for those of you who have been around our church since at least June of this year, You've already heard the context of Isaiah, and you don't even know it. Did you realize that you've heard the context of Isaiah? Back in June, in the early part of summer, we went through Micah, another Old Testament prophet. Micah and Isaiah were ministering at the exact same time of history. And in that sermon on June 7th, we spent about 12 to 15 minutes unpacking what was going on in the world at that time, who Micah was, who the kings of of Israel and Judah were, and really trying to understand what was going on there. So my dilemma is, well, what do I do today, <laughs> right? Do we, do we go back over that? Do we review that? Um, or do I say, hey, just go back online. You know, we have technology nowadays. You can go play uh, the first 12 minutes of that sermon. And so here's what I've done. Here's what I've chosen to do to try to resolve my dilemma. Today, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of the context of Isaiah. And if you think, well, that's not enough. I want more. Then go back to June 7th sermon on Micah and press play and listen to the first 12 to 15 minutes of that sermon, Okay. Sound like a plan to you guys? Okay, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. I'm just going to give a little bit of background here in chapter 1 and then chapter 6 before we get into our passage for today. Here's what the very first verse of Isaiah's uh, writings tell us. It says in Isaiah 1.1, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, that's actually very helpful for us because we know when these kings walked the earth. And so what this tells us is uh, Isaiah's ministry was between 792 to 686 B.C. in that range, right? So that puts Isaiah at a particular point in time in world history. He is a real figure, and he has a real ministry. So let's scoot ahead a little bit to Isaiah chapter 6 now. I want to share with you Isaiah's call to ministry. This is probably one of the most popular passages in Isaiah that people would know. And we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 9 of Isaiah chapter 6. Here's what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, which is 740 B.C., the year that King Uzziah died, I, that's Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Now, we're going to stop there for the sake of time, but there's actually a lot that comes after that that's just as important and about the call of Isaiah's ministry. God unpacks how he's going to be sending him to a people who are not willing to listen, not able to understand. And so what I want to encourage you to do later today, later this week, go back and just read Isaiah chapters 1 through 6 to get a bigger picture of the context of the ministry that Isaiah has been called to do. But for today, let's look at these first nine verses and just talk a bit about what we've read here. So Isaiah, this prophet of God, has an amazing vision of God in his throne room. And we see here that the presence of God is concealed by smoke, and yet even so, it is so glorious, it is so magnificent that Isaiah cries out against himself and says, woe is me! Right? He knows that for a sinful man to be in the presence of a holy God is incredibly dangerous. Right? It's, it's death. It's a death sentence. But God takes care of that. He cleanses him, and he issues a call to ministry. And Isaiah answers that call. Here I am! Send me, Lord! God gives him this mission. He says, I'm going to send you. You're going to go to the people, specifically the people of Judah, but they're not going to be willing to hear. They're not going to be able to understand. They are deaf, dumb, and blind. He doesn't say that specifically here, but we'll hear that later. So Isaiah is to go to them, and he's to go to the people of Judah, and he's going to proclaim judgment upon them for forsaking the Lord, for turning away to false gods. And he's going to issue them a call to repentance. He's going to say, you need to return to the one true God. That's what Isaiah has been commissioned to do. But the challenge is that the people he's going to have been hardened by their sin. And they were to be the people of God, right? They were to be the representatives, God's visible representation to the earth, through whom all the nations would be blessed. But rather than doing that, they have turned aside to pagan gods, false idols, And if you were here back in June, you might remember when we studied the context of of Micah that at that time in world history, uh, the nation of Assyria was like looming large in the Middle East, right? We heard about how they had come in with their army. Uh, The Assyrians just came into the northern kingdom of Israel and conquered it, conquered Samaria, the capital of that northern kingdom, and ripped all the people out of their homes and sent them off into exile, right? It was a very tumultuous time. 
And in fact, we heard that the Assyrian army even came up to the doorsteps of Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. Right? So Jerusalem is now encamped all around by the Assyrian army. And it doesn't look good for King Hezekiah and his people. But God miraculously delivers them when Hezekiah repents. He cries out to the Lord, God answers his prayer, and he sends an angel to destroy the Assyrian army. God rescues them. But rather than continuing to trust in the Lord, Hezekiah instead turns to the nation of Babylon. And he says, come, provide security and protection for me. I need someone to be my trust. And that's that fundamental misplacement of trust in the creation rather than the creator that leads God to send Isaiah to say, look, you did it again. I'm going to judge you. There will be consequences for your sins. And he tells them, you're going into exile. The southern nation of Judah will be exiled into Babylon. However, the purpose for the exile was to purify them. God also tells them that he will bring back a faithful remnant, a people that he would seek to, again, make his namesake, who would declare his glory to all the nations. And as you think about that context, as you think about what's happening here, you really have to begin to ask yourself, how in the world are they going to be able to do that? Right? How can a nation of sinful men and women ever represent a holy God? Here's the answer to that question. Ultimately, what God's going to do is he's going to purify his people by sending his servant. He's going to have a servant whom he appoints that he's chosen, and he's going to send them to the people to make them a holy people, a people for his namesake who could represent them, represent God to all the nations. You see, the servant will be a light to the world. He will bring justice to the earth. The servant will be the means through which God eventually creates a new world where sin and suffering and death are no more. So you can think about, man, that sounds pretty good, <laughs> right? If you're the people of Judah and you've been sent into exile, but that hope is what you have, that's a pretty good place to put your hope. I can't wait to find out who that is. Right? Who could that chosen servant possibly be? So with that in mind, we're going to get into our study of the suffering servant songs. So go ahead and turn now to Isaiah chapter 42. That's page 349 if you grabbed one of those blue Bibles on the way in. And as you get ready to read uh, today in Isaiah 42, you know, we just kind of painted a pretty ugly backdrop to this passage, right? There's a lot of really hard things that have been going on. The, the nation's been, uh, you know, sinning, rebelling against God for hundreds of years. They've now been uh, sent to, into exile and to judgment, right? So it's a lot of hard things. But when you read Isaiah 42, this is actually a passage of hope. It's a passage of encouragement. It's something to look forward to and joy. And so try to bring that into your mindset as we read it aloud together. And I'll read it aloud. You guys can follow along. You don't have to read it with me. (laughs) Here's what it says. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. God's Word says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. 
Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And what an awesome passage of Scripture, right? There is a lot of hope. There's a lot of truth here. And so what we want to do is we want to study this and unpack it as we seek to understand God's plan for His world. And so that's what we're going to spend time doing today. What is God's plan for His world? What is He doing through His chosen servant? So the call for us this morning as we get started is to behold God's chosen servant. Behold God's chosen servant. And if you look here at verses 1 through 4, this is the introduction of this servant of the Lord, the one whom we are called to behold. And that's the word that's used here. And that word is important. It's used to get the audience's attention. It's like, hey, come and see, observe, and understand. And this word was very intentional. It's drawing a comparison to some things that actually happened right before this. If you still got your Bibles open, go back to Isaiah 41, just the previous chapter, and look at verse 24, and then verse 29. Look at how they start. Behold, behold. And those two passages are talking about, behold the worthlessness of idols. Realize how they are a vapor. Realize how they are nothing in comparison, that they cannot do anything. Their works are less than nothing. They're emptiness. Right? And in comparison to that, you have the chosen servant of God whom you are to behold. And he is so much greater and so much better. This is the one whom God upholds and delights in. He is the one upon whom God will put his spirit. So who is the chosen servant? Right? That's the question. Is, is this the nation of Israel? The Old Testament says, hey, the Israelites were meant to be God's chosen people. Right there to be his representatives to this world, uh, that if they would keep God's covenant, he would bless them, and through them, all the nations would be blessed. Is that who the chosen servant is? No, the chosen servant is not Israel. As you read the earlier parts of Isaiah, and as we've already kind of shared in the context, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, they are stuck in spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness. They're rebels against God. They've chosen to go their own way. They've begun worshiping pagan deities rather than the one true God. And they've been doing that for hundreds of years. They need to be rescued and redeemed by God's chosen servant. So who is it? Who is this chosen servant of God? Well, it's the Messiah. It's the anointed one. It's that promised Davidic king who is going to rule on the throne forever and create a people for God's namesake, who's going to bring God's justice to the nations that we just read about here. And we, as modern day readers, have the privilege of knowing who this Messiah is. We've been learning about him all year in the Gospel of Matthew. This chosen one, 
God's chosen servant is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. What I want to do is I want to point out some of the correlations between Isaiah and the New Testament and Jesus' life and ministry. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3 and look at how Jesus' baptism even begins to fulfill this prophecy in Isaiah. It'll be on the screen if you want to watch it there and read it there. It's Matthew 3, verses 14 through 17. John would have prevented him, Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately when he went up from the water, behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's, let's think about this, what we're reading here, and how this kind of fits in with what, we're, what we've heard already in Isaiah 42. Right? At Jesus' baptism, John's starting to object, and, and Jesus says, no, this is what we must do. This is what's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And when we studied that passage earlier this year, right, all righteousness means what God's will and ways are. That, that's righteousness, and Jesus wants to do what God wants. He wants to please God the Father. When he's being baptized in this, in this passage, what we see is he comes up from the water, and the Spirit of God is put on him. Do you remember what Isaiah 42 said? That God would put his Spirit upon his chosen servant. And then we see in this baptism passage that God the Father speaks and acknowledges, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Right? If you use the wording of Isaiah 42, Jesus is the chosen servant in whom God delights, the one upon whom he puts his spirit. Right? There's connections here. It's Old Testament and New Testament coming together. Pretty amazing. And we not only see that testimony, but Jesus actually knows that he's the fulfillment of this, this passage in Isaiah. There's going to be a, another passage I'll take you to in the Gospel of Luke where when Jesus is in the synagogue... They hand him the scroll to read, and he turns, it's the scroll of Isaiah, he turns to this passage and says, hey, I am the fulfillment. So let's look at that. This is in Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. It says, and he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as, he was, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? Jesus is the chosen servant of God. The scriptures testify to it. The works of God testify to it. Jesus himself testifies to it. He's the one whom God has called the Israelites to behold. The one that they've been waiting for. So now let's go back to Isaiah and look at what God has told us about this servant. 
right? Verses 1 through 4 gave us a lot of information about God's chosen servant. So let's kind of walk through them verse by verse and think about what we know about this servant. Verse 1 says, he will bring forth justice to the nations. That's the mission of the Messiah. That's what he's here to do. He is bringing forth God's justice to the nations. Well, what does that mean? What, what is God's justice? Well, God's justice is his righteous will and ways that lead to life. It's the understanding that God is the creator over all, and he has the right to declare what is right. He gets to say what is right and what's wrong, and he has a way that things are supposed to be. And his justice is when things are going according to that way, when everyone and everything in creation is obeying God's way. And when that happens, that leads to life, true life. His justice provides order that that results in all of creation flourishing. Commentator John Oswald defines it this way, This is that life-giving order which exists when the creation is functioning in accordance with the design of its Lord. God calls the shots. He says what is right and wrong, and we as his creation are to function in the way that he says. So when the chosen servant comes, he's bringing with him the justice of God. He will restore God's life-giving order to creation. He's going to set all things back in his proper place. He's enabling us as a broken creation to fulfill the original design of God. That's a pretty amazing thing that he's doing. That's an amazing promise of the Lord. Think about how broken our world is. It was broken for them back then. It's still broken for us today. Sin is abundant. We need this promise. Think about how hard the hearts of the people were back then. They were turning aside to idols on the left and to the right. What do we do today? (laughs) The same thing. It may not be carved images and idols like they did, but we have our own things that we lift up and worship other than the one true God. And so this is a beautiful promise that that brokenness will not continue forever. There is an answer to it. A chosen servant who will make all things new. Let's keep reading. In verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 42, we're given this information. He will not cry aloud or lift his voice, lift up his voice, or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So this chosen servant is not described as some kind of conquering king, but rather as a meek and mild Messiah. And that would have been, for the original audience, a a stark comparison to the kings that they're used to, right? They're thinking of the Assyrian kings, the Babylonian kings, the Persian kings, who just came in and by their sheer strength of, of army and might enforced their will and their ways. That's not how God's chosen servant is going to function. He is bringing God's justice in a radically different way. You see, God's answer to the oppression of of men and sin is not to respond with more oppression. Instead, he sends a quiet, humble servant to bring forth justice. Look at verse 4 now. This is important. It says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Don't mistake the servant for a sissy, right? 
Just because he's meek and mild doesn't mean he's not going to get the job done. Right? He will accomplish the will of God. He will establish God's justice on the earth. The servant's mission is guaranteed success because God is with him. God upholds him. God puts his spirit upon him. The servant will be successful. Again, just as you think about that, amazing truths to consider and to soak in on today. Now, this last piece of verse 4 is maybe for us a little bit interesting. Like, what does that mean? The coastlands wait for his law. Well, whose law is it referring to? His law, the servant's law. Now, that's actually a big deal because the word for law is Torah. And that had a lot of significance to the Jews who were hearing this originally from Isaiah. I mean, they're used to one law. They got Moses' law, which they know came from God. But now they're being told, wait, there's a servant's law? That's what the coastlands are waiting for? What's going on here? What that is saying is that the servant speaks for God. That he is going to be one who instructs the nations, both Jews and Gentiles, on the way to please God. God is speaking through this servant. And this teaching actually harkens back to the very beginning of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2. So let me take you backwards to Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. Here's what it said. This is a prophecy about the future. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up on the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, God's plan, his purpose has always been for all nations to have the opportunity to learn to obey him and to follow him. That's the plan that God is working out. And as God's servant, that message that he is delivering, that law is God's law. Here's what it means to obey God's will and ways. The whole world needs to know it. The whole world needs to hear of it. And if you think about what we've heard already this year in Matthew, that's exactly what Jesus Christ does in his life and ministry. We've heard him proclaiming to the people, this is what it looks like to fulfill all righteousness. This is what it looks like to be a righteous person of God, to obey the law. Right? Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He taught the people, here's what it looks like to be God's righteous people. And that's the servant that Israel and, frankly, the entire earth, including you and me here today, are being called to behold. This is the one whom we are to come and see, observe, and understand. Behold God's chosen servant. But that's not the only person that we're to behold in this passage. You should also behold your God. Behold your God. You see, after introducing the servant in verses 1 through 4, God then goes on to remind the people of who he is and what he's done as he begins to commission his servant. So let's go back to Isaiah 42 and let's look at verse 5 and let's behold, if you will, the resume of God. In Isaiah 42 verse 5, this is what God said, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk 
in it. God is the creator. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is over all things. He is the one who spreads it out, determines the extent of its reach, and then brings up the things that are within it. And if that wasn't enough, he is also the one who gives you life and breath. Right now, sustaining you, keeping you alive in this very moment is the God of the universe, giving you life and breath. How amazing is that? Behold your God. There's no one like him. Those worthless pagan idols that the Israelites and the Judeans have been tempted to turn aside to, they could do nothing like this, right? They're created things. They can't make anything. They can't give the Israelites or the Judeans life or breath. Right? They can't give them ultimate purpose or meaning. Only God can do that. So behold Him. What I want to challenge you to do is to seek to put yourself in Israel's or Judah's shoes. Right? Think about where they're at at this moment. For hundreds of years, generation after generation, they have been going astray. Right? They've been turning aside from the one true God to worship idols. Things aren't going well for them because of that. Right? They're worshiping their wealth. They're worshiping success. They're worshiping all sorts of created things. That's not too hard for us to imagine, is it? Right? That's still the same patterns that humanity struggles with today. This is humanity's fundamental problem, that we don't look to the one true God for our identity and for our purpose and for life and breath, but instead we expect the creation to satisfy us. We expect our idols to give us contentment. We worship something other than the one true God. Our hearts, our, our inner man or inner woman, they're idol factories. Could be food that we turn to, could be finances that we expect to satisfy us, could be entertainment or pleasure. All sorts of things, when, when things get hard, when life gets distress, distressing, what do you turn to? And frankly, 2020 has been a great year to evaluate that. Where have you turned when the stressors in life have seemed too much for you? And what are you turning to? Are you more dependent on God than ever this year? Or have you turned to something else? Have you turned to that latest uh, Netflix series? or movie marathon that you've been working your way through? Has it been sugary drinks or snacks? I'm just consuming a lot of those instead. Or maybe for you, this has been the year where you've turned to beer or wine or liquor to escape. Maybe some of us are running to a new hobby rather than to the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend my time in this. This is going to be my distraction. This is going to get me away from the stressors of life. Or perhaps... Some here have turned inwards into anger or worry, despair even, of trying to control your circumstances in some form or fashion. And please don't raise your hands to where you're at on any of those. That's not the point here. But what are you turning to? This is, the, this is the battle we're all in. This is the same kind of temptations that men and women faced back then when Isaiah was walking the earth. And it's the same kind of temptations that we face today to turn to something other than the one true God to satisfy. Thinking the creation rather than the creator can give us what we truly need, life, breath, purpose, eternal satisfaction. Right? The creation cannot offer you those things. So rather than turning to idols, behold your God. Behold your God and worship him. Let's go back and look at verses 8 and 9. Listen to what God says about himself. 
I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Behold your God. Behold His glory. There is no one like Him. He doesn't share His glory with anything or anyone. Idols have no glory. They are nothing compared to Yahweh. He is the God who really is and the God who is really with you. And He has all the glory. He is able to declare the details of the future. Now, why do you think that God would bother to point out that he is able to declare the things of the future? Like, why did he bother to say that? Well, what happens when those things come to pass? It brings him glory. God has said, here's what's going to happen, and then guess what? It happens. He's proclaiming, I will send a chosen servant. 700 years later, Jesus shows up. The fulfillment of God's prophecy. He is God. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. No idol can do that. They can't even speak, let alone declare what the future will bring. God alone is worthy of your worship. Jesus has come. He's entered into his creation. He's walking in righteousness as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring prisoners out of their darkness, out of sin, to set them free. Now, if you noticed in verse 9, it said, behold, again, God's reminding his people, hey, look, my words already come to pass. He's already declared to them, you're going into exile in Babylon, and by the time this part of Isaiah is written, they're in exile. And then he says, hey, I'm going to send a redeemer, in this case, the king of Persia, Cyrus, and he'll rescue you out of of exile. And guess what happens? That's what that's what, what's, what happened. Cyrus came, he conquered Babylon, and he sent the, Jew, the Jews back to their land. Right, God has shown himself faithful. He's shown that he can declare and fulfill his word. He is a faithful God. He keeps his word over and over and over again, even when his people are faithless, even when we're rebels and we have no, we have no right to his faithfulness. He is still faithful. God will accomplish his plan. He will rescue and redeem a people for himself. And we can't screw it up. So praise God for that. And I hope that as you think about this, as you consider what we're talking about this morning, that you would say, man, these are some pretty great reasons to rejoice. I mean, this is some good truth to be chewing on this morning. And frankly, that's going to be our last takeaway as we seek to understand God's plan for his world. Rejoice in the servant's mission. Rejoice in the servant's mission. We've already said that the mission of the servant is to bring God's justice to the entire earth. We heard that several times in verses 1 through 4. But let's look now at verses 6 and 7 and see some of the details about how he's going to accomplish his mission. Verses 6 and 7 said this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. There's God the Father speaking that He is calling His servant in righteousness, meaning God knows exactly the right time and the right place to send 
his servant. When Jesus came, it was exactly the right time and the right place to accomplish God's right purposes. Now remember, there's 700 years between this prophecy and when Jesus shows up. So you can imagine the Israelites are probably wondering, when is he coming? Why do we have to keep waiting, Lord? But God knows exactly what he's doing. And as we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew this year, Jesus shows up and he lives and he conducts himself in a completely righteous manner. His concern is obeying his Father's will. His desire is to make sure that others know what the Father's will is and obey it as well. He's not going to deviate from what pleases God. He's not going to turn aside. He wants God's will to be done. He upholds God's righteousness. We also see here that God will be with his servant. God will be with him as he goes out and accomplishes the will. He's not going to go out alone. God the Father is with him. He's intimately involved in the details of the mission. It will be successful. See, Jesus didn't come to this earth on his own accord. He came because God the Father sent him. And he came to do his Father's will. Which is for us reasons to rejoice. This is God's plan. This is God's desire. It's from him and he will see it through. It's for the entire world's good. We just heard that Jesus is a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, that he's come to open the eyes of the blind and to bring prisoners out of darkness, out of that dungeon of spiritual captivity. What that means is that Jesus' mission directly impacts you and me. It's not a mission for some other people. It's a, people, it's a mission that affects us. It's, it's brought good to us. You see, as a covenant for the people, Jesus is the way to God. This is how God is making it possible for a sinful, rebellious people like you and me to be reunited to a holy God like Him. It's through Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus actually speaks of this in John's gospel. In John 14, verse 6, it says, Jesus said to him, to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way to God. Jesus alone is the way through which we can be rescued and redeemed to our Creator. There's no other hope for heaven either. You either trust in God's chosen servant for your salvation, or you don't. Those are the only two options. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. First for the Jews, and then for the Gentiles, all the non-Jews like us. And his mission is he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but God knows not all of them are going to respond well. And we know, right, from reading Scripture that the leaders, the religious leaders of the Jews, they reject Jesus. They crucify him. And his gospel message is spread to all nations so that there would be a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation that would be God's people. The plan was always, always, always. Say it with me. Always, always, to create a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Right? To call them to repent and believe in Jesus. That's always been God's plan. That's what he's accomplishing. That's his purpose. And I promise the flashing light is not intentional technical difficulties, so try to ignore that if you can. But what we're hearing in this section in Isaiah is God's faithful. He is faithful to rescue and redeem, even when his people are sinful. And 
again, right? Remember their situation. Israel and Judah have been walking away from him for centuries at this point. Generation upon generation upon generation of wickedness and rebellion. And yet God is still keeping his promise. And these, these nations are in exile even, right? They're in Assyria, they're in Babylon. And it would have been tempting for them to think, man, has God forgotten us? Are the covenants no more? Do we have any hope of a future with our God? And this promise that we read here in verses 6 and 7, that's their answer. No, God has not abandoned his people. He is establishing a new covenant with them that will result in their rescue and redemption. And God speaks through Isaiah to provide hope to a spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind people that you can be rescued and redeemed. And for us today, as you think through what we've seen and observed in Jesus' life and ministry, right, what does he do while he's walking this earth? He opens the eyes of the blind, right, physically and spiritually. He rescues those who are in bondage to sin and death. He frees them from demonic oppression. He uh, literally frees them from their own flesh, sinful flesh as well. Right? This is his specialty. Jesus is a redeemer. He is bringing God's justice to the nations. And frankly, he's continuing to do that even to this day through his church. And we have the privilege of knowing the end of this story, that he is coming back, and that with him, he will bring the fullness of God's justice to this earth. He will destroy sin and death forever, right? And he will make a new heaven and a new earth where those things are no more and where his people get to dwell with their God. That is a tremendous hope. That is a tremendous promise that we can be forgiven and redeemed. And so as we get ready to close here in worship, what I want to encourage you to do is to think about your response to God's chosen servant. Has there been a definite time in your life where you've recognized that Jesus alone can save you and that you need him to save you from your sin? And if that's not the case for you, I would love to talk with you after the service. Let's spend some time wrestling through that together or set up a time to do that, right? Coffee or lunch on me. I'd love to walk with you through those questions or concerns that you might have, right? Because that's a decision of eternal significance, and if you're here this morning and you're like, well, I have responded to Jesus' to God's chosen servant in faith, then here's what I want to challenge you to do. This week, evaluate what does my worship look like? What does it look like for me to behold God's chosen servant, to behold my God? If you were here last Sunday in the morning or in the afternoon, the challenge was very similar. It was to let this fall of 2020 to be a time where there's no question about whom we're worshiping right, that our time pursuing the Lord in His Word and in prayer is just so evident that we're focused on how we can get out and and love our community and proclaim His truth to others. Is that where you're at? Are you so, uh, you know, sold out to the Lord that you're seeking to worship Him in your daily walk so that you can then be His hands and His feet in our town, in our community, in our nation? And if there's something that's getting in the way of that, then Wrestle with that this week, right? Identify that hindrance. Whatever it is that's keeping you from the word, whatever that's keeping you from prayer, whatever is keeping you from a vibrant, authentic relationship with the Lord. Right? He died for you. So live for him. He died for you. So live for him. Let's close in a word of prayer.